0: Hello Dreamers and welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, I have a few notes about the show. This is an independent one-woman production, which means I depend on you to help keep the show up and running and there are a few ways that you can support. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. It gives us more visibility in order for new listeners to discover us. You can recommend us in true crime discussion groups and forums. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have an extra dollar or two a month, you can join the show's Patreon. In doing so, you'll gain access to dozens of full length episodes you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't for you, but you would still like to help support me and the puppies, you can do so with a one time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Camilla H., Lee B., Nancy B., Joyce L., Ddj, Aaron S, Marie P, Chris P, April G, Christina H, Linda N, and Jennifer G, for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge, or donating through PayPal. All right, let's get started with this week's episode. In last week's episode number two thirty seven. We discussed another neighbor feud because of the poll conducted in the Facebook discussion group. That was the option at the time when I was deciding what to do next, that was most voted for. However, since then, unneighborly behavior has been surpassed by mysterious disappearances. And this one is pretty baffling. The child at the center of the story was only seven years old when he seemingly vanished into thin air on the morning of June 4th, 2010. I posted about him recently in the Facebook group because this past September 9th, this child would have turned 20 years old if he were around today. There is a pretty strong consensus as to who may be the person responsible for this child having gone missing. And there has been pretty much since the day he was last seen 12 years and three months ago, but the missing pieces, the key to the solution of this child's disappearance have been frustratingly out of reach, despite all that suspicion. The answer usually lies with the last person to have seen the child, but even that really hasn't been clear either. This child was there one minute and gone the next. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the timeline. We're going to discuss the person of interest and whether or not this person has been treated fairly. In this 238th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Lost Son. Where is Kyron Horman? The backdrop of our case today is the largest city in the state of Oregon, which makes up part of the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. While Oregon sits atop the state of California, Portland is pretty far north in the state, some 300 miles or 482 kilometers away from the California border. But it's less than 10 minutes away from the northernmost state in the Pacific Northwest, Washington. With more than 650,000 residents, Portland is the 26th most populated city in the country, and about 50% of the entire population of the state lives within the surrounding metropolitan area. Portland was named after the other Portland in the state of Maine. And having been close to the end of what is commonly known as the Oregon trail, people were moving west. The population of the area began to grow in the mid-19th century, unless you died of dysentery. This is not considered a vacation series episode, because at least one of the primary characters in this case is a native of California. And full disclosure, dreamers, there is so much misinformation, conflicting information, and... Different versions of the same thing that I hope that I got most of this story accurate. And if I didn't, we can talk about it in the discussion group or on social media. And I can do a short follow up in an upcoming episode if I get anything wrong here. So, Kyron Horman was born to parents Kane Horman and Desiree Young on September 9th, 2002. His dad was, and still might be, an engineer who at the time worked for Intel, a company that develops and manufactures semiconductors, computer hardware, autonomous cars, automation, and artificial intelligence. On this website that I found called realitychatter.com, it listed other things that Kane Horman is. He was married twice, with divorces coming relatively shortly after having a child with each woman. He belongs to a gym. He works for Intel. He's a University of Washington graduate. He's a Mason from a long line of Masons, and his brother, Christian, with a K, was convicted of sexually abusing a child. I had not heard about this case going on with Kyron's uncle, Kane's brother, so I briefly looked into it, and according to an article I found on williamatweek.com, it said that Christian Horman was arrested in February of 2009 for an incident that occurred back in October of 2008 when his ex-wife's 15-year-old daughter was visiting. The article stated, Sonomish County Superior Court records say that Christian Horman, 32, was living with his girlfriend, her mother, and his one-year-old son in Bothell, Washington. On October 24, 2008, the daughter of Christian Horman's ex-wife stayed at his house while his girlfriend was out of town. The records say that Christian invited the girl to sleep in his bed. He massaged her back and then began rubbing her in inappropriate areas. The girl left the bed and called her mother and Christian Horman apologized. When police interviewed him, Christian at first said that he was asleep and couldn't remember what had happened. Finally, he confessed, according to our court records, saying that he was trying to arouse and initiate relations with the girl. Police asked Christian what he was thinking about after the girl pulled away. He then revealed that there was a history of abuse in the Horman family, court records show, and he said that his grandfather had abused him. Christian was sentenced on June 16, 2010, to six months in jail. So... That was kind of a little bit of an interesting side note that happened around the same time that our story today is taking place. So back to Kyron's parents, Cain and Desiree, they were married in 2000. But while she was pregnant with Kyron in 2002, Cain was having an affair. From my understanding, Cain is somewhat of a habitual offender when it comes to cheating so that doesn't bode very well for him when it comes to being a sympathetic character in this case. They had been having marital problems before they got pregnant. When they found out, they decided to give the marriage another go. But the reconciliation did not last long and they separated a month before Kyron was born. Desiree moved to her parents' house four hours away from Portland to the city of Medford, Oregon. A month later, on September 9th, 2002, Desiree gave birth to Kyron. The couple's divorce was finalized in 2003. For about the first two years of Chiron's life, Kane and Desiree shared custody of him. They managed to make it work even though they lived four hours apart. However, sometime in either late 2003 or 2004, Desiree was diagnosed with some serious problems with her kidneys. And if i'm not mistaken she ended up relocating to canada where she received medical treatment she came back to oregon a couple of months later but because of her ongoing medical conditions she made the difficult decision to give Kyron's father primary custody however regardless of that and her health issues desiree continued to be a strong presence and very active in Kyron's life so now Kyron was living full-time with his dad at his home in the northwestern part of Portland, in a relatively rural area. Kane, being an engineer at Intel and having such a demanding job, he was going to need to seek childcare services for Chiron since he was only two years old. He turned to a woman who had been friends with Desiree prior to Chiron being born, and that woman was Terry Moulton. Let me give you some background on Terry. She is one of those with an eyes. She's Terry with an eye. She was born in Grass Valley, California in March of 1970, which would make her 52 years old today. Grass Valley is located in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, about an hour northeast of Sacramento. She was adopted by Larry and Carol Moulton, who were both elementary school teachers. When Terry was 12, her family moved to the city of Roseburg, Oregon which is almost a three-hour drive south of Portland. They lived in a nice, well-kept, middle-class neighborhood. Nothing particularly remarkable about Terry's upbringing other than the fact that she was adopted, the circumstances of which I'm not sure about. There could have been some issues going on there, but we just don't know, at least I don't know. Terry graduated from high school in 1988. From there she went to Umqua. I'm gonna go and see how that's pronounced, hold on. Yay, nailed it. Okay, so from there she went to Umqua Community College, which is where she began dating a young man named Ron Tarver. Three years later, in November of nineteen ninety one, Terry and Ron got married. She was twenty one years old at the time. They moved to Albany, Oregon, a little more than halfway between Roseburg and Portland. They started off managing a public storage facility before borrowing money from Terry's mom and dad and purchasing a restaurant franchise called Chubby's. However, the business failed and three years later, Terry, Ron and her parents filed a lawsuit against Chubby's claiming that they were misled in terms of the investment that they were making into the franchise, that what they were told that they needed to invest was not enough to operate the franchise. They ended up winning their lawsuit and a settlement of $250,000. Terry and Ron wanted to start a family, but Terry apparently was unable to get pregnant for a while. She, years later, stated in a post on social media that when she was in her 20s, she didn't think that she would be able to have children, but she ended up giving birth to two. Terry found out in March of 1993, when she was 23 years old, that she was pregnant with her first child, with husband number one, Ron. On January 26, 1994, Terry gave birth to a boy that she named James Logan. However, before their son even reached the age of two, the marriage was on the rocks. Both of them had extramarital affairs. They quickly divorced. Terry was granted primary custody of their son, and Ron later on agreed to pay Terry child support. So it doesn't sound like that it was a thing that went through the court system, but rather Terry just was to be sent payments voluntarily. After her divorce from Ron, Terry apparently attended Hamburger University, which is located in Chicago, Illinois. She returned to Oregon where she worked at a McDonald's in the city of Cottage Grove. She began dating a man named Richard Ecker, Who would become husband number two in august of 1996 when terry was 26 years old and her son james would have been two and a half they lived in springfield oregon which is also a little less than two hours south of portland so we're basically moving north and south up and down along the five freeway here throughout the state that's where these various cities are situated on march 29 1998 around two in the morning the car Terry was driving was hit by a drunk driver. The accident apparently left Terry with long term health issues, including migraines and a pinched nerve in her spine. The recovery was long. Terry was unable to work, so she decided to enroll in college while she worked through managing the ongoing back pain. She attended Northwest Christian University, where she ended up earning a degree in elementary education. It was her father-in-law, Chuck Ecker, a teacher himself, that encouraged and inspired her to become a teacher, which I thought was kind of odd because both of her parents were school teachers. So I'm not sure why they weren't the ones who encouraged and inspired. Maybe they did or tried to, and Terry just didn't listen or want to listen. She did get married when she was young. They were 21 years old, and it's not the youngest persons to ever get married, but it's still kind of young. And that would have been the time that Terry would have been finishing her education, but she decided to get married and start a family of her own instead. So husband number two, Richard, he not only encouraged Terry to pursue her higher education, he helped her pay for it too. Two years after Terry and Richard were married, in August of 1998, Richard officially adopted Terry's son, James. James's biological father, Ron, struggled to make ends meet following his divorce from Terry. He was unable to keep up with his child support payments. So after discussing it with Richard, Terry suggested to Ron that maybe it would be best if he gave up his parental rights in order to allow her husband to adopt James to which Ron agreed. Richard's parents were strongly against their son adopting James. They just didn't think it was a good idea to make that kind of commitment. I mean, he could always divorce Terry if things went south, but adoption is adoption and that's forever. Richard did it anyway, but his parents believed that Terry pushed and pushed him to do it. So he did. In 2000, Terry graduated with her degree in elementary education. She obtained her teaching credentials. She, Richard, and their son James moved to the city of Beaverton, Oregon, about 15 minutes outside of Portland, where Terry hoped to find a teaching job. They ended up purchasing a home a little further east of Portland in the city of Aloha in February of 2001. Again, Terry turned to her parents for help in getting the house. A month later, Terry got a job as a substitute teacher in the local school district. For the rest of that school year and through the 2001-2002 school year, Terry steadily worked at different schools as a relatively long-term substitute, meaning she'd be subbing for several months each time she was assigned a class. Colleagues described Terry as dedicated to the job, but one of the stricter substitutes that they had. Unfortunately, Terry's marriage to Richard began to form cracks during this time and in 2001, the couple separated. Another teacher Terry had become friends with was also on the verge of a divorce and she asked Terry if she would be interested in renting a room at her house since her marriage was breaking down as well. Terry accepted the offer and moved in with this co-worker. However, this coworker would come to rue the day that she asked Terry to move in. Apparently, Terry was terrible to live with. For some reason, Terry had taken it upon herself to rearrange the furniture, and she had even moved this person's bookshelves out into the backyard with all of the books on it, and it ended up raining on everything, ruining all of the books. When she discussed this with Terry, she seemed completely oblivious as to what the problem was. In January of 2002, after less than six years of marriage, Terry and husband number two divorced, and she was granted primary custody of their son. And it was ordered that Richard would pay $169 in child support. So, you know, this is probably one of the reasons why Richard's parents tried to warn him to not legally adopt James. What if things didn't work out? This would be the consequence of that. He would be financially responsible for the child until he's 18. I can't say for sure whether or not that was Terry's official plan to get somebody else other than James's biological dad on the hook for the child support. That was something that I heard discussed on another podcast that I listened to that talked about this case, that Terry got him good, got him stuck paying for a kid that wasn't his. But, you know, Richard had his good intentions and adoption means the kid is his, period. In 2003, Terry went back to court requesting an increase in child support, and they actually bumped it up to $550 a month. That sounds much more reasonable to me, but what Terry did next was kind of a dick move. With the child support being more than tripled, it hit Richard hard in the wallet. He said that he went to Terry's house to ask her to give him a break on the support, that he was having difficulty paying that much money. And while to him, she seemed like she was agreeable to a reduction, but the following day, Richard received a phone call from their local county sheriff's department ordering him to stop harassing Terry. After that phone call, Richard never saw James again and continued to pay child support until he was 18. Within a couple of months of her divorce from Richard, Terry became a member of Bally Total Fitness and her workouts often lasted several hours a day. At the end of the 2001-2002 school year in June, Terry's substitute teaching job at the elementary school where she had been for seven months ended. That same month, Terry met Kane Horman. It's my understanding that Terry was friends with Desiree, Kane's wife, prior to this. Desiree has stated that Terry is the reason why her marriage to Kane ended. Remember, Desiree found out that she was pregnant with Kyron in January of 2002. Kane met Terry in June. Desiree and Cain separated in August, Chiron was born in September. So Terry has pretty much been in Chiron's life since the day he was born. Kane insisted that while he and Desiree were still living in the same house, when his affair with Terry started, they were basically living separate lives. Desiree moved into her parents' house in Medford the month before Chiron was born. I mentioned that when Kane met Terry that he quote-unquote hired her to take care of Kyron, but it sounds like that duty was sort of a part of the package deal that Terry was getting when she began having an affair with Kane. They met in June. Desiree says their affair is the reason for the breakup, but it was probably more of a last straw sort of a thing because she would end up moving out two months later. This was supposed to be a time when Desiree and Kane were going to try to work through their problems since she became pregnant with Kyren. But Cain obviously couldn't help himself. He started an affair with Terry. Desiree left. They had Kyren. They shared custody. And Cain has attempted to frame Terry's presence there being as a child care provider. We've heard that old song and dance before. Kyren did come to live with Cain full-time in 2004. Terry had already been living there since 2002. So, luckily for Kane, he was already messing around with the nanny ahead of time. In 2002, when Terry moved in with Kane, the word was to the neighbors or anybody who asked that she was there to help with Chiron. Now, from what I understand, in the time between Desiree having Chiron and prior to her going to Canada for kidney treatments, she was residing either in or near Portland, so she and Kane would be able to effectively co parent Chiron. It was during this period of time that all three of them, Kane, Desiree, and Terry, were providing care for the baby. And this may be the reason why Terry was telling the neighbors that she was just the babysitter. The arrangement was Kyron would stay with Desiree at night. He went to daycare during the day. He would spend two hours every afternoon with Terry and Kane. So this whole nanny slash babysitter thing was more BSy than everybody thought. This was going to be a stepmom thing from the very beginning. So, to me, Kane, he tried to downplay it, but it was all a lie. Terry was having an affair with him. She was never going to be the babysitter or nanny. She was going to be the other woman. In 2003, Terry earned her master's degree from Pacific University and continued working as a substitute teacher, renewing her license to teach as needed. The state of Oregon has nothing in its records in terms of any disciplinary action ever taken against Terry during her time working as a teacher. The following year, in 2004, that is when Kane gained full custody of Chiron, and Terry became a primary caregiver. According to Terry's son from her first marriage, James, and from her second marriage (technically, since husband number two adopted him), he has stated that his mom treated Chiron as her own that she was the one who noticed that Kane's vision was poor and he required glasses and that Terry was the one who taught him sign language as an infant in order for him to be able to communicate. I don't necessarily think that noticing the boy needed glasses or teaching him sign language are indicative of a person treating a child as their own, because those are normal things to notice and do for a child in your care. It's been reported that Terry did embrace her role as Kyron's stepmother but it's also been reported as time went on that she grew to despise him too. I don't know how much of that is true. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. In January of 2005, Terry resumed going to the gym again, but this time her goal was to participate in a bodybuilding competition. There are a few pictures of Terry online in competition, and she clearly worked hard to get there. However, back in 2010, a contestant who stood next to Terry on the stage during one of the competitions said that Terry was a bit out of place there. She said in an article on InsideEdition.com that Terry came to the competition unprepared, stating, the reason that I remembered her was because she was polite and I felt sorry for her. She was standing next to me prepping and she was not professional at all. Whoever was training her did not do a good job. So dreamers, I don't know anything about the bodybuilding world. So take that assessment how you will. When it came to Kane, he has stated when Terry began bodybuilding and training, he noticed an abrupt and extreme change in her overall behavior, that she was not only becoming very self-centered and self-absorbed. She also developed a short fuse and a hot temper. Kane is quoted as having said, she's not eating a lot of food. She's exercising twice a day. She's up at 4 o'clock in the morning. She's not sleeping at night. So we get just general irritable behavior towards everyone around her. Yeah, I'd be unpleasant too if my schedule was anything like that. Kane also said that Terry was using over-the-counter stimulants and fat burners in high doses. From January to April of 2005, Terry lost 62 pounds. By the end of April, she had bulked up and tanned up she competed in the Emerald Cup bodybuilding competition that took place in Bellevue, Washington. She came in fourth out of 35 contestants, and that was it. Terry was one and done when it came to competitive bodybuilding. On July 10, 2005, Terry was pulled over while driving on the 5 freeway with her son James in the car. A breathalyzer was administered, and Terry blew a 0.15. She was arrested and charged not only with a DUI, but with also reckless endangerment of a child because of her son being in the car. She pleaded guilty, and while the consequence was a $600 fine and to enroll in an alcohol diversion program, the real consequence was the fact that the reckless endangerment of a child conviction would preclude her from teaching anymore. So all that college work and her degrees, her bachelor's and her master's, were effectively worthless. During this time, Terry admitted to Kane that she had been drinking regularly, but claimed that it was to help her go to sleep. She had described this time following her bodybuilding loss as a very low point in her life. So to me, this sounds like the beginnings of a downward spiral for Terry. I don't know about all of you listening, but I get the feeling that throughout much of Terry's adult life, she's been somewhat teetering on the edge of spiraling. For the years since she first got married when she was 21 years old, until the time she came in fourth place in that bodybuilding competition, it seemed like Terry was just a step or two away from losing it. But she managed to barely hang on, relying on her parents, going from one husband to the next. Then when her son's biological dad wasn't carrying his own weight financially, she managed to get husband number two to adopt him, It makes you wonder if Terry even really had any intentions of staying with husband number two for the long run, as if she got the adoption in place just in case the marriage didn't work out. She would be covered either way. If that was the case, then well played Terry with an eye. Well played. And if we look at this from a practical standpoint, Terry's stock has kind of dropped in value pretty quickly since the beginning of 2005. She probably felt really good about herself from January through April when she was working out and training for the bodybuilding competition. However, Kane said that she was irritable with a bad temper. She came in fourth out of 35, which isn't bad, but it's still not a win. And then she suddenly gave up on bodybuilding. Then her substituting job ended in June. Then in July, she caught a DUI and reckless endangerment charge, which ended her teaching career. But even with all of this going on in her life, Cain hung in there with her, stood by her side, at least for the time being. In December of 2005, Terry got a job as an assistant manager at a Red Robin restaurant. That lasted until August of 2006 when she decided to quit. Then in December of 2006, Terry and Cain and her son James and his son Kyron moved to a house that Cain purchased in rural northwest Portland. And about five months later, on April 15, 2007, Kane and Terry got married. It seemed like it was kind of a spontaneous thing. They were on vacation with Kane's parents in Kauai, Hawaii. They were in their swimsuits. It wasn't a formal affair, and Kane's dad was the one who presided over the wedding. So Kane is standing by his woman despite all the troubles that she's had. In fact, a month after they got married, he bought Terry a brand new candy apple red Ford Mustang because That's the best, most practical kind of car to get for a mother of two, and we know that the family is going to be growing. Her vanity plate for this car was RDSQRL, Red Squirrel, which is her nickname. By this time, Terry was an assistant manager at a place called the Newport Bay Restaurant. In March of 2008, Terry found out that she was pregnant. The news kind of surprised Kane because he was not expecting to have any more children. And we already know how much Kane just loves not staying in committed relationships with the women that he impregnates. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say things are only going to go from bad to worse for Terry. The fact that his initial reaction is a surprise, not because it was a pleasant surprise, but because he didn't want to have any more kids, makes me think that this is kind of a big red flag that things are not going well between the two of them. On November 12, 2008, Terry gave birth to their daughter that they named Kiara. And for the time being, Terry focuses her time and attention on the new baby, constantly posting pictures of her on social media. But according to Kane, he told the media later on in the summer of 2010 that Terry suffered from postpartum depression. I looked this up and Kane had said to ABC News, quote, she went through some postpartum depression after the birth Her emotional state was just more erratic. Kane described Terry's behavior as changing drastically after the baby was born. She had very little patience with the older kids, James and Kyron. They said it seemed okay in the beginning, but as the months passed, Kane started seeing how angry Terry would get at things like the baby not going to sleep. By the time the baby was six months old, Terry was seen by a doctor and prescribed antidepressants. By May of 2009, according to Kane, his marriage to Terry had become troubled. He attributes the difficulties in the marriage to the postpartum depression, but based on what happened later on that year, I can't help but feel like that's somewhat of a cop out for Kane. Knowing how this story is going to end, I'm almost fairly certain that Kane started cheating on Terry like he did with Desiree. We already know Terry's emotions are quite wobbly. If having a new baby caused her to struggle with postpartum depression, Imagine what Kane's extracurricular activities would do to her. But she was once the other woman too. Terry wrecked a home and now she's having her home wrecked. But we do know that in the end, Terry Horman is the one that's going to come out the other end of the story looking really, really bad. But you know what? Desiree in recent years, she's turned on Kane, pivoting from having stood together in solidarity for somewhat of a period of time against Terry Time has given Desiree the opportunity to see things a little more clearly. The truth is, Kane was having a sexual relationship with Terry while he was married to Desiree and while she was pregnant with Kyron. Terry was right there, ready to swoop on in as soon as that stepmom position opened up. Kane stood by her through her random decision to get into bodybuilding. He stood by her when she was convicted of DUI and reckless endangerment. He stood by her when her bachelor's and master's degrees got tossed into the garbage as a result, ending her teaching career. He stood by through it all and he went on to marry her and he went on to have a kid with her and he continued to stick by her while her behavior and emotions were becoming erratic and none of this he ever shared with Desiree. He kept it all from her. And that's why when Desiree became aware of all this mess, she eventually no longer stood in solidarity with Cain. I knew this going into the story. I started off this episode not a fan of Kane's at all. Not a fan of Terry's. I'm not a fan of anybody's in the story. I think everybody is messed up on all sorts of levels. I just think that that's something for us to chew on when we think about this case. As we make our way through this timeline. If Kane knows Terry had a drinking problem, it's also possible that Terry was taking steroids while she was doing her bodybuilding. Her friend Dee Dee Spicer was asked in a deposition if Terry took steroids and she invoked her Fifth Amendment right to remain silent to avoid self-incrimination. So that leads me to believe that Terry might have possibly taken steroids. So drinking, steroids, which can affect people's behaviors and emotions. Kane knows about the DUI. He knows about the reckless endangerment conviction. He knows about the postpartum depression. He's throwing all this stuff out there to throw Terry under the bus. But the fact is, he stood by this woman for eight years and never warned Chiron's mother about any of it. The woman who was primarily taking care of their child. Terry may not have clean hands, but you know what? Neither does Cain. Sometime in November or December of 2009, Terry became acquainted with the landscaper who took care of the grounds at Skyline Elementary, where Kyren was a student. She claimed to have hired him to take care of the gardening work at her home but apparently without Kane's knowledge. I've heard Terry explain the reasoning behind this, being that Kane wanted her older son James, who would have been 15 years old at the time, to take care of the yard work, so in order to help him with that, she hired this landscaper unbeknownst to Cain. I guess Mom thought it was just too much for her son, so she secretly hired this guy to do it. The landscaper's name is Rudy Sanchez, but I'll probably just continue referring to him as the landscaper so it was sometime in january of 2010 that this landscaper would allege that terry offered him ten thousand dollars to kill kane the landscaper did not reveal this information until six months later on june 26 2010 on or about that time the case that we're discussing today it broke 22 days earlier on june 4th 2010. i just find it suspicious that the landscaper waited to report this alleged attempt on Terry's part to hire him to kill Kane. It was something that he should have reported when it happened. But anyway, the landscaper said the reason behind this is Terry found out that Kane was having an affair at work. So Kane strikes again, starting relationships outside of the ones that he's in, either during their pregnancies or shortly afterwards. We don't really know just yet how serious Terry was about this whole thing about hiring the landscaper to kill Kane if it even happened at all. It's been speculated that Terry was having her own affair with the landscaper. She may have said it in jest. She may have been dead serious. It may not have happened at all. But what we do know is is that the murder plot never came to fruition. Kane was not killed. But you know, Kane is a serial philanderer, and he did it in the past, and Terry knew that. He did it with her, and he would do it to her. That's on Terry. She was the other woman. She stayed with him. She married him. She had a kid with him. And it surprises none of us that he did it again. She probably felt like killing him. But she redirected her emotions into somebody else. She got involved with this landscaper. I'll talk more about him a little bit later in the timeline when we get into the investigation. In January of 2010, also the same month that Terry allegedly asked the landscaper to murder Kane. He moved out from living with his mom, Kane, Kyron, and Kiara, and he moved in with his grandparents, Terry's parents. According to Kane, while he was out of town on a business trip to California, Terry called him up and said that James was moving to her parents. She said that they had gotten into a fight and that James was becoming too much for her to handle. She called James's dad to see what he thought she should do, and they ended up having him go with her parents. Those close to the family have stated that after James moved in with his grandparents, his grades improved at school and he was doing much better overall. So now we're going to get to the day that Kyron Horman goes missing. On Friday, June 4th, 2010, at 7.45 a.m., Kane Horman said goodbye to his son Kyron as he was feeding their cat. He exchanged a few words with Terry, and then he left for work. That would be the last time Kane would ever see Kyron. At 8 a.m., Skyline Elementary School opened its doors early, so the parents and students arriving could take a look at all the science fair projects. There was a sign outside that indicated the science fair was from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., and the talent show was from 1 p.m. to 2.45 p.m., Kyren participated in the science fair, his project was on the tree frog, and he was also scheduled to take part in the talent show later that afternoon. Also at 8am, Terry arrived at the school with Kyren and 19-month-old baby Kiara so they could tour the science fair. She was driving Kane's truck that day because it was her intention to pick up Kyren's science project later on. What time was she supposed to pick up the project? I'm not quite sure. I don't know if it was ever fully explained. But anyway, they arrive at Chiron's display, at which point Terry snaps a picture of Kyren with a beaming smile in front of his exhibit, wearing his CSI t-shirt. This would be the last photo ever taken of Kyren. At 8.15 a.m., the president of the school's PTA, Gina Zimmerman, arrived at the science fair and she saw Kyron and Terry standing in front of his tree frog exhibit. At 8.45 a.m., this is the approximate time that Terry said she left the school. She stated that just before she left, she watched Kyron walk down the hallway towards his classroom when they were finished at the science fair. At 9 a.m., Kyron was reportedly seen by another student near the south entrance of Skyline School. At first, investigators said this was the last time anyone had confirmed seeing Chiron, but later on, they would roll back on that assessment. Now, as it stands, there has been no credible sightings of Chiron after 8.45 a.m. For the next hour and a half, Terry was busy running errands at several locations around the area. The first place she went to was a Fred Meyer, which is about an 11-minute drive from the elementary school. I've never seen a Fred Meyer in person. I've never been to one. And when I looked it up, there's a reason for that. They are a chain of what is described as a hypermarket with locations in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska only. A hypermarket is a big box store that combines both a grocery store and a department store, which is essentially designed to allow for one-stop shopping for the customer. The first Fred Meyer that Terry went to is located in Hillsboro, which is where Terry thought she had a prescription for Kiara who had an ear infection, but it turned out that the prescription was made at a different Fred Meyer pharmacy. But because she did make a purchase for which she had a receipt, at the time stamp that she was there was at 9:12 a.m., 27 minutes after leaving Skyline Elementary. 27 minutes after Terry last said she saw Chiron, At this point, if we believe Chiron never made it to class, we have to wonder, where is he at? Where was he between 8.45 and 9.12? The time stamped on the receipt. He was not seen in the Fred Meyer with Terry and Kiara. He was not seen in her vehicle. So, where is he? Between 930 and 10 a.m. Terry was seen at a second Fred Meyer store located in Beaverton, which is a store that had the prescription. A witness named Andrea Leckie, which testified before a grand jury on or about August 17, 2010, so a little more than two months later, that she had an encounter with Terry that she described as odd. Andrea knew Terry from the gym. She used to work there and would only speak to Terry briefly in passing as either when she arrived or left the gym. Andrea said the encounter at the Fred Meyer was the longest one that they had ever had. According to an article on CBSNews.com. Andrea said that Terry told her that she had just come from the science fair at Tyron School and even showed her the picture of him standing in front of his tree frog exhibit. Andrea stated the only thing I think was significant is that she showed me a picture of kyron next to his project i think the thing that seems odd about it perhaps is we were just passing each other by and in a few seconds with her daughter being sick in her arms made it a point to show me the picture there are some things about this statement that slightly bother me one thing is i don't know if terry is going to be at the fred meyer necessarily carrying. Kiara in her arms. I did take a virtual tour of one of their stores in the Seattle area and this place is no joke to walk around in, but the pharmacy is towards the front. The front end of the store almost looks like a mall. When you walk in, to your immediate left is a Starbucks on the grocery side of the place, to your right is a jewelry store, next to that is an electronics and home entertainment shop, and next to that is the pharmacy. I know Terry is only going in there for one thing, which is Kiara's prescription. But still, the wait at the pharmacy can be long. And, you know, lots of parents would probably grab a shopping cart, even if it is a quick trip. Another thing is Andrea is saying that she saw Terry between 930 and 10. Terry is there to get a prescription. She probably either has her purse or maybe even her diaper bag with her. She has to wait in line to get her medication and with all of this stuff and supposedly having a 19-month-old baby in her arms, she allegedly went through all of the trouble of fishing her phone out from wherever it was to show a person that she hardly knows one single picture that she took of Kyrene at the science fair. The way Andrea framed this interaction it's clear that she believed that this was an attempt to establish a memorable appearance at the store. In other words, an alibi. But an alibi for what? The timing seems to line up with what Terry Horman has described her whereabouts being that morning. 8.45, leaving the school. 9.12, time-stamped receipt at Fred Meyer Number 1. And between 9.30 and 10, the encounter with Andrea an encounter that she described as odd some two and a half months later after Terry Horman has been completely and totally vilified by the media. Andrea had time to ruminate and ponder that encounter and pair it with everything that she's been hearing in the news. To me, I think Andrea's statement can be taken with a grain of salt, not only because of the potential media bias, but also because it really doesn't mean anything. It's not evidence of anything outside of the fact that it verifies Terry's whereabouts within the hour and 15 minutes after she left the elementary school. Also at approximately 10 a.m. The science fair came to an end and classes for the day at the school began, which would be rather unusual, right? Because of the science fair. If I remember correctly, when it came to the science fair, they would have it set up in the auditorium or in the multipurpose room, and then parents could come and see the exhibits and whatever, and throughout the day, each class would line up and get to walk through the displays so each student would have a chance to get to see all of the exhibits in an orderly fashion. I don't know if this is what Chiron School did, but it does explain why classes didn't officially begin until 10. Kyron should have been with his homeroom teacher, Christina Porter, who marked him absent when she called roll. So now, it's been an hour and 15 minutes since Terry left the school, and there have been no confirmed sightings of Kyron anywhere in the school, and then he's marked absent at 10. This is when calls should have been made to Kyron's parents to find out why he had an unexcused absence. I don't know if it happened or not i don't think it did because later on they made some legislation requiring parents to be contacted before the end of the school day if their child has an unexcused absence so Kyron's absence it went unnoticed beyond the teacher marking it in her book. nobody else was ever notified sometime between 9 30 and 10 which also falls into the same time frame. Andrea said she encountered Terry at Fred Meyer number 2. Terry stopped by the Magic Dry Cleaners located in Beaverton. She left Kiara in the car just for a minute or two while she dropped off some dry cleaning for Kane. The owner verified that Terry came in by herself and that she was inside for a very short period of time to drop off clothes. After the dry cleaners, Tammy went to Michael's Arts and Crafts store, also in Beaverton. She was in there for a few minutes, exiting the store shortly after 10 a.m. Investigators would view surveillance camera footage from all four of these locations and were able to verify that Terry was at each place roughly when she said she was. Her whereabouts were accounted for until approximately 10, 10 a.m. There is no indication that Kyron is with Terry at this point. She's not seen with her by any witnesses, nor on any surveillance footage. So the next hour and a half is not so clear. Terry had her 19 month old Kiara with her the entire morning. And she reported that Kiara did have an ear infection, which is why she made those trips to the Fred Meyer to pick up a prescription to treat that infection. Terry claimed that for the next hour and a half. She drove around some of the rural roads around the Portland International Airport in an effort to soothe Kiara, to get her to rest while the ear infection medications took effect. There was a report that Terry made a phone call around 10.40 a.m. while on this drive, but as far as anyone knows, that's never been confirmed. If it has, that information has not been made public. This is the time that people tend to believe that Terry either disposed of Chiron or possibly even killed him. There's going to be an allegation that Terry possibly had help from a friend of hers named Dee, Dee Spicer. I will talk a little bit more about her in a few minutes. So much has been made about Terry's cell phone pinging at a tower on or around Savi Island. This is located approximately six miles or 9.5 kilometers away from the elementary school. Extensive searches of the area were made, including dive teams, but nothing was found. I had a little bit of a difficult time figuring out more information about this phone ping and when it allegedly happened, but I did read that it happened in the morning. Here's the thing. I Googled how far away can a cell phone ping a tower? I found an article on smallbusiness.com that stated, the maximum distance between a cell phone and a cell tower depends on many different factors. The connecting technology, landscape features, the power of the transmitter in the tower, the size of the cell phone network cell, and the design capacity of the network all play a role. Sometimes the cell tower transmitter is set to low power on purpose, so that it doesn't interfere with neighboring cells. Often hills, trees and other buildings interfere with transmission. Any of these factors might prevent you from getting a signal even if a cell tower is quite close. A typical cell phone has enough power to reach a cell tower up to 45 miles or 72 kilometers away. Depending on the technology of the cell phone network, the maximum distance may be as low as 22 miles because the signal otherwise takes too long for the highly accurate timing of the cell phone protocol to work reliably. Typically cell size outside of urban areas means cell phone signals may have to travel up to several miles. So this is why the triangulation of three towers is used to pinpoint a person's location. Like in the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell mess, they were able to triangulate the location of Lori's brother, Alex's cell phone Right down to the fire pit on the Daybell property. And that has an accuracy of within five hundred meters or a third of a mile. Terry was apparently driving to a variety of locations that morning, so her phone hitting the tower on Savi Island means little to nothing to me. Terry's next verified location was when she checked into her gym at eleven thirty nine PM which was a 24-hour fitness back in the city of Beaverton. This is where Terry regularly worked out, and several people who worked at the gym or who were members of the gym were very acquainted with her. She checked Kiara in to the daycare. She worked out for close to an hour, and after talking to some of her friends for a few minutes, she left the gym with Kiara at 12.40 p.m. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about Dee Spicer, and we're going to roll back the timeline to sometime between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. So Dee Spicer is said to have been working, doing a gardening job at a home that is located near the Horman residence. The family who reside in that home reported that Dee, who was working there, inexplicably went missing between 10 and 11 a.m. and did not return to complete the gardening job until 1 p.m. They even said that they tried calling Didi's cell phone numerous times, but were unable to reach her. The residents of this home also reported that Didi's vehicle never left where it was parked outside. Even when Didi's whereabouts were unknown, when they saw her car but did not see Didi, they started to become very worried that something bad had happened to her And they continued trying to reach her by phone, but they never made contact with her. At 1 p.m. That afternoon, Didi returned to the gardening job without providing any explanation as to where she was at. Whatever this disappearance means or what it suggests can only be speculated on. It does overlap with the time that Terry claimed that she was driving around to soothe Kiara in the car. It's been theorized that Dee Dee and Terry got together during this time. However, later on, when Dee Dee was deposed for a civil lawsuit that Desiree filed in 2012, Dee Dee took the fifth on almost 150 questions that she was asked about this case. To some, it seems suspicious as to why she wouldn't want to answer the questions, but she does have every right not to. Pleading the fifth is no better or no worse than mildly embellishing the details of your encounter with Terry the day that Kyron went missing, like possibly Andrea did when she saw her at the Fred Meyer. Over the years, because Dee Dee has been a supporter of Terry's, they believe that she knows more about Chiron's disappearance and possibly had something to do with it or helped her out because of this unexplained disappearance in the middle of the day on the day that Kyron went missing. Okay, so Terry worked out at the 24-hour fitness for about an hour until 1240 p.m. She checked Kiara into the daycare as I stated a few minutes ago and there are lots of people who are hung up on the fact that Terry took Kiara to the gym daycare even though she had an ear infection. As stated, among the things that Terry said she did that morning after running her errands is that she drove Kiara around in order to soothe her to sleep or to allow for the prescription medications to kick in. To me, that kind of makes sense, but I can see why it's suspicious. This is the time when people think Terry got rid of Chiron. They believe she drove around with Chiron to do all of her errands even though nobody ever saw him with her. That she somehow harmed him with her daughter, right there, apparently. And then, even in that overlapping time when her friend Dee Dee had supposedly left her gardening job for a little while, the theory is, is that Dee, Dee showed up to help Terry with all of this nefarious activity, getting rid of Chiron, disposing of him, covering it up, whatever it is that is thought Terry may have done in that time frame. And then Terry shows up at the gym, casually drops Kiara off at the daycare proceeds to work out, and then chit-chats for several minutes with her gym friends, and then checks Kiara out and goes home. That's a lot of nonchalantness going on here with Terry, if I'm being honest. Most people aren't so cool, calm, and collected after killing somebody, particularly a child that they've helped raise since birth. But then again, perhaps Terry Horman has nerves of steel and is capable of killing and then being as cool as a cucumber a few minutes later. We need not forget that we are talking about a woman here who has no history of violence, no indication that she was anything but a dedicated mom. Even the most hardened career criminals have a hard time keeping their nerves calm after killing somebody. I just have a little bit of a difficult time believing that Terry Horman went from stay-at-home mom to child killer and was able to appear totally unflustered. I'm not saying it isn't possible. I'm just saying I'm trying to picture all of this in my head, taking Kyron to school with his 19 month old sister in tow, going to the science fair, hanging out with them there for a good 45 minutes, and then somehow managing to leave campus with Kyron and the baby without anybody noticing, showing up at the first Fred Meyer and making a purchase in under 30 minutes, no sighting of Chiron, showing up at a second Fred Meyer within the next 30 minutes, picking up the ear medication prescription, running into an acquaintance to casually talk about the science fair, showing her a picture and everything, and again, no Chiron in sight, and then going to the dry cleaners and to Michael's, still no Chiron, then driving around to soothe Kiera and letting her medication start to work, because Terry wants to go to the gym. She gets to the gym, checks in, drops Kiara off at the daycare and the daycare staff accepted Kiara. Internet people are really hung up on the fact that Terry would take her quote unquote, very sick child to the gym daycare. But you know what else? The daycare apparently took in a very sick child. No, it doesn't seem like the best thing in the world to do to take your kid to a daycare when you know she's been sick. But Terry did seem to have a remedy and maybe it worked. Maybe Terry did manage to get Kiara to settle down to give her a power nap. Maybe the medications worked and once she saw that Kiara was looking and feeling better, she decided to go ahead and go. Parents usually don't take their kids to daycare or to school when they're not feeling well and we know that they aren't an ear infection is usually associated with a fever and an alert staff member should be able to tell by looking at the child that they aren't well and would typically turn the child away it's policy no matter what the kid has they can't allow sick kids into the daycare to prevent the spread of germs but ear infections are not contagious even if kiara did have some residual lethargy the staff or whoever are familiar with Terry, if she told them that it was just an air infection, that she gave her some fever meds or antibiotics, that she just had a nap and she's feeling fine, the staff may very well have just let Terry pass. Because if at any time Kara becomes fussy or begins to appear to not be feeling well, all they have to do is page her to come pick her up. Terry finished her workout, talked to her friends for a few minutes, and left the gym at 12.40 p.m., and there was still no sign of Chiron. Now, before you jump all over me for being so defensive of Terry's timeline here, this is where I get suspicious. The talent show at Kyron School was scheduled to start at 1 p.m. and it was to end at 2.45 p.m. Kyron was supposed to perform at the talent show and Terry was supposed to be there to see him perform, to give him support, to cheer him on. Kyren's teacher reported that Terry did not tell her that she wasn't going to attend. And apparently Terry is always present when Kyren is participating in any school event or activity. Another parent or their student who was a friend of Chiron's, was expecting to see both him and Terry at the show and they were surprised that near one of them showed up. So we know for a fact that Kyren was supposed to perform, right? So I have to ask if Terry was supposed to be there. Why was she a no-show? Was she a no-show because she knew Kyren would not be there to perform? Because she knew he was missing? Because she had something to do with him going missing? That would be very suspicious, right? That she had the knowledge that Kyren would be absent from the talent show. So she didn't bother going after she left the gym. But she could have also not gone to the talent show because she wasn't planning on going. We're taking the word of witnesses who are saying that Terry is always the one that comes to the school to support Kyren. Really? It's always Terry, his stepmother. What about his actual mom and his dad? Do they never come to see Kyron do anything? I again feel like witnesses could possibly be biased against Terry when making this sort of sweeping generalization about Terry always being the one to support Kyron, especially since she has both a teenager and a toddler of her own to take care of. I'm not quick to believe that Terry is always the one that was there and was always the one who was ever expected to show up to these things. This is the end of the school year. Kyron is about to advance to the next grade. The schools always put on these big productions at the end of the year for parents to see all the hard work that their children have accomplished. Families usually make a big deal out of these things. Parents, we know this. Not only do the parents make the effort to come to these events, grandparents often show up too. Yet these witnesses want us to just believe what they have to say at face value that Terry is the only one who was supposed to be there and nobody else? Because that's precisely what happened. Nobody else showed up for Chiron either. Chiron's mother Desiree has said tearfully in interviews that she wishes she could have been there for Chiron to see his science fair project. We've seen her on TV crying that if she was there, none of this would have ever happened, but she said she had to work. I believe she lives some distance away at this point, so perhaps she gets a pass. She couldn't make it to both the science fair and the talent show. That's fine. I'll accept that. Sometimes you just can't get out of work. It bothers me a little bit that she didn't even try for the talent show, though. But I get it. But what about her parents, Kyron's grandparents? They could have gone, no? This might be sounding a little bit judgy on my part, but we're passing lots of judgment on Terry Horman for many of her actions on that day, too. Dreamers, my biggest problem for me when it comes to this talent show, just as big of a problem as Terry not showing up for it, if not more so, is a fact that Kane Horman failed to show up for it also. This man has no excuse, yet nobody wants to talk about that. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the timeline so I can complain about Kane. His workday came to an end at 1.45 that day, June 4th, 2010. He already missed the science fair, and the talent show is only halfway over. Not only did this guy not attempt to rush over to the school to see his son's performance, he didn't even try to get off work early so he could be there for the show at all. It's a Friday. Kane is an engineer at Intel. I'll never believe this guy couldn't slip out of work an hour early to go see his son perform. I just don't buy it. After he got off work at 1.45, he went home. He arrived at home at two PM instead of going to the school to try and see that talent show. When he got there, he said that Terry was already there too, using her laptop. He has stated that he gave Kiara a kiss, got some food, took that into his office at home to work some more until three thirty. Then he said at three thirty he put Kiara's shoes on to get her ready to go and walk to the bus stop to meet Kyron who is supposed to be at the talent show. Why are you meeting him at the bus stop? Why aren't either one of you at his school to pick him up? And his science fair project. That's one of the things that bugs me about this case too. It's the one thing that makes me suspicious of not only Terry, but also of Kane. What about the science fair project? We were told early on in the timeline that Kane and Terry had switched cars because supposedly so Terry could pick up Kyren's science fair project. When exactly was that supposed to happen? I'm really bothered by the fact that neither one of them Kane or Terry seemed all that concerned about trying to get to the talent show that day because it would have made sense. I'm bothered that Terry left the gym at 1240 and didn't go straight to the talent show to support Kyren. Maybe. Just maybe Terry felt like going to that talent show, which was supposed to last for an hour and 45 minutes, was too long to expect her 19-month-old to sit still and just decided to go home, but then that would leave nobody being there for Kyron, and this is when both parents need to show up so that they could take turns helping to take care of the baby. I'm bothered by the fact that Kane couldn't even be bothered to go to the talent show either when I know he would have been able to get off work early that day. He left work at 1:45. It was a Friday. There's no way I'll believe that he couldn't do it. Especially if he found out that Terry wasn't going to be there either. Why would both Terry and Kane not go to the talent show? Why did they both go home that afternoon? Because what the two of them were doing that afternoon at their house, at least what they said they were doing, it's almost as if there wasn't even a talent show to be concerned with at all. Okay. At 1.21 p.m., this is about 40 minutes after leaving the gym and 21 minutes after the talent show had started, Terry was at home, and that was the precise time that she uploaded the pictures of Kyron at the science fair to her Facebook page. There have been reports that Terry supposedly never uploads pictures of Kyron onto her Facebook, that all of her pictures are of Kiara. Again, I have to take this with a grain of salt because I would find it hard to believe that in all the seven years that Terry had been helping to raise Kyron, that never once did she ever, ever, never post pictures of him on her social media. Granted, Facebook wasn't around until two years after Kyron was born. And I don't know when Terry joined, but even so, This is the same kind of sweeping generalizations that was made earlier. The one about Terry being the only one who ever went to Kyron's school activities. And I have to ask, which is it? Is Terry the only parent in Chiron's life that ever showed up for him for anything that he did at school? And in all those times, she never, ever, ever once took pictures of him and put them on Facebook. She never posted anything at all ever so that Cain could see if he checked his Facebook at work or something, or even his mom, Desiree, if she tagged him. She never posted pictures of anything, yet she's the only one who ever went to his school activities. (sighs) Look, Facebook launched in 2004. And I have to say that most of the people that I'm friends with on Facebook, they seem to join from the mid to late 2000s. I joined in 2008. Some joined after 2010, but pretty close to it. You know, we always look at that date when we accept friend requests, because if someone just joined in 2022, then it's kind of suspicious, right? I mean, who just joins? What adult just all of a sudden decided to join? Terry and Kane had Kiara in November of 2008, right smack in the middle of when millions and millions of people were flooding to Facebook. She just had a new baby, And we know the moms with the new babies post pictures of them ad nauseum. I mean, we get it. Your baby's adorable as hell. Terry's no different. She had a teenage boy. She had Kyron, And finally, she's got a baby girl. Of course, she's going to post pictures of her all the time. And now looking back on this, it's easy for us to say, oh, Terry never posted pictures of Kyron. And the one day when he goes missing, she all of a sudden decides to post pictures of him. Because now we can't prove it. And besides, what difference does it make? The bigger issue for me is the fact that she came home instead of going to the talent show. Why did she not go? If Kyren was going to participate and she was expected to go, why did she not go? It bugs me so bad. And it doesn't seem like she's doing anything to rectify that either. If she did come home because Kiara was tired or not feeling well, I'd believe that. If she had texted around to see if either his mom or his dad or his grandparents could go to support him instead, I would believe that too. But nobody went. Terry didn't go. Kane didn't go. Desiree didn't go. Nobody went. And I have a problem with both Terry and Kane when it comes to that. And by the way, I did read an online blog that Terry uploaded the pictures of Chiron at the science fair into an album on Facebook that she captioned June 2010. And this album was said to have contained pictures of both Kyron and Kiara. So you can take that how you will, if you want to believe it. If you don't, I'm finding lots of conflicting information about this case all over the internet and wrong information too, which is why I was unable to finish this in the timeframe that I wanted to. I went into this, not knowing the full details of everything that happened minute by minute, the day that Kyron vanished. So I'm learning and coming into my own conclusions. As I go along here, but I, like many of you in the Facebook discussion group, had a really strong suspicion about Terry Horman going into this. But the more I read, I get more mystified than suspicious, if nothing else. So back to the timeline. At 1 45 p.m., Kane Horman, his workday ended, and he gets home to get ready for the weekend. This is 45 minutes after the talent show started and only 24 minutes after Terry uploaded those photos of Chiron, Around the same time that Terry uploaded those pictures, she sent Kyren's teacher an email asking when she was supposed to pick up Kyren's science project. Terry had taken Kane's truck instead of her Mustang because she wasn't sure when she was going to need to take it, but she found out that the displays were going to be kept up the whole day. I'm suspicious of this email because... Going back to the talent show again, if Terry was supposed to be there, then when the talent show was over, school would be dismissed. Kyron would not have to take the bus home. He could ride home with Terry and his tree frog project could be picked up. But none of that happened. So I think that when Terry was sitting there at her computer uploading pictures of Kyron and his project, it dawned on her that she still needed to pick the thing up, that maybe she was supposed to take it with her after the talent show, but she ended up not going. So she sent that email instead to kind of cover her tracks, because look, if Terry knew at one thirty that afternoon she still needed to pick it up, she could have still gotten it at the same time she got Tyron but she apparently had no plans to go to the school to get him at all. But then, neither did Kane. God, this bugs me so much that the two of them just sat at home during that talent show, knowing damn well that Kyron was supposed to be in it, that at least Harry was supposed to be there, that she had Kane's truck to pick up that science project, that it would not make any sense at all to just show up at the school and pick up the science project and let Kyron ride the bus home. It bothers me that they both did that, that they just sat at home. Kane apparently just continuing his work from his home office. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. He allegedly continued to work from home as the talent show was going on, not going to see his son perform, not going to the school, not picking up his son's project, not picking up his son, he just sat there on his computer, Terry on her computer, allegedly waiting until 3.30 to walk to the bus stop together to meet Kyron. Yep, that's their story. It's as if they knew. It's as if the bus stop was going to be their big reveal. The big moment in front of all of the witnesses. Kyron isn't on the bus. Chiron isn't where he's supposed to be. Oh my God, where's Kyron? But guess who else? isn't where they're supposed to be everybody who should have been at that talent show supporting kyron and guess what again kyron wasn't there either did terry know that did she know that kyron wasn't going to be there did kane not show up because he knew kyron wasn't going to be there or did terry not show up because she had a fussy toddler and did kane not show up because he totally could not duck out of work an hour early and he just had to go home to his office and work some more and not go to the talent show that clearly nobody is at. Is everybody just sitting casually at home and by everybody I mean Kane and Terry on their computers knowing in the back of their minds that Chiron is performing without one single member of his family there to cheer him on? Or are they sitting there knowing in the back of their minds that he's dead? The talent show ended at 245 at 3.30, Kane, Terry, and Kiara all walked together to meet Kyron at the bus stop. Because Kane doesn't raise any questions to Terry about the science fair project or the talent show, it leads me to believe that he has no expectation or reason to believe that Terry should be anywhere else but at home. But she had his pickup truck that day to pick up the science project. She was allegedly supposed to be at the talent show. Terry sent an email to the teacher asking when she should pick up the science project. I don't know if she ever got a reply, but neither one of these people should be walking to the bus stop to meet Kyron. They should have been at that damn talent show, or they should be heading to the school to go pick him up and his science project. But they didn't. They went to the bus stop, and as we know, Kyron never got off the bus. In talking to the bus driver, Kane and Terry found out that Kyron did not get on the bus when the driver picked up the kids from Skyline Elementary. At this point, Kane and Terry with baby Kara in tow, rush back home to get into their vehicle in order to drive to the school ostensibly to see if Chiron is there waiting for them to pick him up. When they arrive, they discover that Chiron isn't there either. Not only that, they discover that his teachers marked him absent all day. His backpack and his jacket were in the class as he left them in the morning before he went to look at the science fair exhibits with Terry. At 3.56 p.m., a school administrator named Susan Hall made the 911 call to report Kyron missing. The call went out over the police radio and there began the largest search effort in Oregon history. A little more than seven hours since Terry Horman said she last saw Kyron walking down the hallway towards his classroom. Okay, Dreamers, this episode is turning out to be longer than I expected it to be. I've been trying to keep these things down to one part. I have the whole thing written. I'm just getting a little bit tired of talking to myself into this mic because I got myself all worked up over this whole talent show thing. So what I'm going to do is break this up into two parts and have the second part for you ready by Thursday-ish. Don't worry, this isn't going to be a month-long saga. You're not going to have to wait forever to get to listen to the end of this. I have it all done for you. It's just been such a convoluted case that I've had troubles getting through it all. I'll be back very shortly with the second half of this for you. As always, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.